Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please, and do also remind our on-the-dial listeners about how they can view the information in the chat room at a later time. Yeah, we do have a great chat room, a wonderful group of people. You know, they all have something to contribute, so um, they do add an entirely new dimension to the show that's on the air, so do come join us and if you are driving or you're not able to be on the internet right now you can always go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat and click on the show there you will see everything that you know we were chatting about and if there are any links that need to be shared you'll find them right in there so you don't have to you know stop driving and scribble down a neural really quickly you know just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat do come join me and do remember that the videos that you show in the chat room, and we often show videos of our guests and or of related subjects, um, they remain available in that chat room as well. Yes, they do. And we've got a fascinating video today for the halftime show, so come right. join us. In this week's spotlight, I want to address the notion of false consensus bias and some of the outrage that we see playing out so publicly today. What exactly is the false consensus bias? Please allow me to explain it by way of an example. I recently posted this comment about the passing of Nancy Reagan. Quote, she was a wonderful human being and a great first lady. Rest in peace, Mrs. Reagan. Close quote. Right away, this remark was added by a Facebook fan. That's not how I remember her. You need to get smart. Okay, think about this. Obviously, I experienced the false consensus bias. For in my mind, the woman had just passed, and both sides of the aisle were praising her role as First Lady, as well as acknowledging the great love affair she shared with President Reagan. That said, obviously there were folks out there who hated the woman, but then... Aren't we all likely to have someone who strongly dislikes each and every one of us? When we stop for a moment and really think about consensus, it's unlikely that we could find an issue that would be met with universal agreement. The real problem then is we tend not to think about those who might not agree with us. Instead, you can hear startled responses to statements as though everyone did indeed expect that we all shared the same opinion. Let me provide an example for clarity. Suppose someone says, I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment. We might hear this sort of response. You're kidding, aren't you? You're not one of those religious nuts clinging to your guns and your gods, are you? Now we have an argument, not the expression of honest differences, and that is the point of today's spotlight. The remark, religious nuts clinging to guns and gods, is a denigrating attack on the intelligence of a person supporting the Second Amendment. This sort of difference devolves quickly. And this is exactly the sort of thing we have seen with some of the debates this year. Issues disappear and ad hominem attacks dominate the exchange between otherwise rational people. Here's a simple solution, and it's actually been proven to work, demonstrated in repeated scientific studies. Instead of assuming that the person you disagree with is dumb and stupid, ask them to expand on why they think as they do. Let them talk it all out. Encourage them to share their ideas about their opinion, and only after hearing them out, offer your own evidence if you're still inclined to do so. 
This may take some patience, but what you are likely to find is as they express their perspective, they will realize either how shallow it is and or you may find that your own opinion might have room for remodeling. We supposedly live in a civil society and it's shameful when we are unable to hear another out, but instead must raise our voices and talk over one another as though that in and of itself is an expression of intelligence. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I think this has to be one of the most important spotlights you've ever done. You know, the uh, country is so divided right now, and that is simply because the two sides aren't listening to each other. If they listened and paid attention and didn't jump in with those sound soundbite put-downs, you know, how could you possibly believe in that? You have to be a really bad person. You know, it's that type of attitude that is going on everywhere. So I think relearning how to communicate and listen is the very first step in healing the country. And the fact is, when you talk to someone, when you, when you actually hear them out, you may find out that you do, in fact, have some things in common. And where you still have differences, I think you can come up with solutions that will keep everyone happy. People aren't listening anymore. They are too entrenched in whatever viewpoint they have and those those sound bites that sound so witty or so you know, that just put you down right away. That just kills off communication. It's political correctness that is ruining our country. Well, and you know, the other thing that I've enjoyed very much doing exactly this exercise is in discovering just how many people are soundbite thinking as opposed to really done the research to understand the issue and what the controversy is. So you can take anything like the TPP. There's a lot of stuff going on about the TPP right now. Okay. Well, what is a TPP? What, what is it that you resist about it? Why is it you like it or you don't like it? Well, what are the provisions of the TPP? And I have found very, very few people who have actually read the TPP or, or are familiar with the issues underlying it. So I, I think that, by listening, we learn. And in that learning process, sometimes as we share, as we talk, we realize, well, you know, gosh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I heard that it was a bad deal because, uh, well, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so opposes it, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's what broadens our ability to truly communicate. And there is another advantage, too, is when you're paying attention to what someone else has to say, you don't have to go do all of the research from scratch by yourself. You know, you'll have your own ideas, but when you actually hear someone out who's got opposing ideas, well, then you start to flesh out that picture a whole lot more. So. Be careful there, though, but, you know, you need to fact check a lot of things that are thrown out. In the... Okay, anyway. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured David Oates and we discussed reverse speech. CB wrote, I believe this stuff is real, but listening to the reverse speech bits always reminds me of the movie Poltergeist. Makes me wonder about all these Republican name-calling stuff going on. If what they say forward is not nice, what does backwards sound like? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Mark commented, seems like this would be a good technique for interrogating spies, terrorists, etc. Aaron wrote, I have worked with reverse speech, and it is amazing what you can learn about yourself doing so. Angela wrote, it's all of those metaphors that is really confusing about reverse speech. It's sometimes like trying to interpret the symbology in your dreams. It seems like everything can have multiple meanings. Moving on, Myrna wrote, I just listened to the show for July 16th, and I'm going to suggest it to a group interested in this sort of topic, and will suggest a question, what is the meaning of life, to the discussion group at our retirement community? I'm 83, the others are about the same age, and we are a small group here who are not ready yet to hang up our brains. Thank you again for your program. Well, great for you, Myrna, don't hang them up, and you're more than welcome. Uh, for all of you out there, be sure and visit our archives at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com if you've missed any of our shows. San wrote, I recently listened to your show with Dr. House. I've never felt so compelled to write a comment than after listening to Dr. House say that we ultimately have no free choice, no free will, and everything we do is predetermined by God. 
I find this statement to be so controversial and so frightening for its implications, as I see it causing two things. Either just give up on life or a quest or something you've been working very hard towards because it doesn't matter. Or two, let me just do whatever I feel like doing with no regard to anyone else because whatever I choose to do is already pre-approved by God. I think Dr. House was an interesting interview, but he needs to channel his own inner captain and re-pursue what life on this earth really is about. Because my inner captain is telling me he's full of crap. (laughs) Well, I disagreed with him at the time, so I have no comments. John wrote, Love your show and how you close every program. For magic is believing in yourself. If you can do that, you can make anything happen. Finally, Rebecca wrote, I am an avid fan. I have read your books and your InterTalk programs have contributed so much to my life that I just needed to write and thank you. Well, thank you, Rebecca, and all of you for your feedback. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, the Aztec incident. Imagine the high desert of New Mexico, March 25th, 1948. Early in the morning, a rancher leaves his house to let his goats out of the corral. There's a loud noise that draws his eyes to the sky where he sees a silver flying saucer wobbling as if in distress. The saucer scrapes along a rock cliff, causing sparks. It then heads north and lands on a mesa. There, a group of witnesses gather to examine the craft, including ranchers, oil field workers, police, a county commissioner, and preacher. They find that the craft is intact except for a hole the size of a quarter. They quickly grab a pole from one of their trucks and begin poking inside of the craft. Suddenly, the craft opens and reveals two slumped-over dead beings. Is this the teaser to a new movie? Or could this possibly really be true? Today's guests, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, argue that it is absolutely true, and there are witnesses and evidence to prove their case. So let me tell you a little about them. Suzanne met her husband, Scott Ramsey, while hosting a radio program discussing Scott's research into the Aztec incident. Scott is considered to be the foremost research researcher into the Aztec incident, having worked on the story since 1987, discovering archives and pursuing interviews throughout the U.S. Suzanne originally discovered the Aztec incident after her mother read Frank Scully's 1950 book, Behind the Flying Saucers. They both have traveled extensively, interviewing and pursuing research at universities and the United States Air Force archives. They are co-authors of the book, The Aztec UFO Incident, so on that, let's get them in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. Thank you, Elton. Thanks for having us on the show. It's indeed our pleasure. Now, I understand that two of you are swapping a phone back and forth. So yep. to do this orderly, let's begin with Suzanne, if we may. Very good. Suzanne, ladies before gentlemen. Hello. Hi. You first learned of this incident from your mother's reading of Behind the Flying Saucers. Tell us about that, please. Well, I was a young girl growing up. We were originally from Chicago, and we moved to South Dakota. And growing up, we always had in our household um, a great many books. Every place you went, there were books. And um, so knowledge was really very important to our family. And around the dinner table, we would talk about whatever we were reading, um, whatever recent books. And my mom happened to I don't know how she came to have a copy of Frank Scully's book, because this was the 60s and the book came out in the 50s. But um, she started talking about it and how interesting it was. And uh, years later, when they decided to move from the cold climate of South Dakota to a little warmer climate, either Arizona or New Mexico, my mom's first words were Aztec. And my dad said, well, why Aztec, New Mexico? And she said, because remember that book I read? And that that was really important to her. And then she moved there, and she found that nobody really talked about it. It was, you know, kind of a taboo subject. 
Okay, you read the book, and uh, you've, you've had an opportunity to investigate it. Just a quick bottom line, how much of what you read do you believe to be true today? Of Scully's book? Yep. You know, that's very interesting that you asked that, because we went about it, and I, I will say Scott started this, and but we have gone about dissecting every single thing that Scully said and to see if it was true or if he was just writing, you know, fiction. And we have been able to document everything that he said. And so, okay, now, before we go on, in fairness to the audience out there, Frank Scully was a columnist for Variety magazine. And many people believe he was hoaxed by two con men, Silas Newton and Leo Gebenar. Gebauer. Gebauer, thank you. Now, both of those men were later uh, convicted, and charges were filed against them for fraud. So in 1953, they were convicted on charges of fraud based on selling a tuner to some Herman Glader for $18,500 that supposedly came from the wreck that was a tuner you could buy at a surplus store for $3.50. You must have come on to that information. Absolutely. Let me, uh, let me address each piece as we go, and then I'm going to turn it over to Scott, and he can go into even, even greater depth. First okay. of all, Frank Scully was a columnist for Variety magazine. You're absolutely right. But he was so much more than that. Um, he was a man that was missing a lung and a leg. He wrote, uh, even in college, he wrote enough that he was able to cover all of his medical bills. Um, he lived all over the world. He held really highly esteemed um, positions. And... And I think that he was chosen because he could keep a secret. When people told him secrets, he could keep a secret. Um, and and uh, he also wrote biographies and wrote for many other publications. But the biographies I always thought was intriguing because people trusted him enough. I, I can't speak for you, Eldon, but for myself, if somebody was going to write my story, I'd need to trust them. And I'd need to know that they they were going to tell the truth, and and um, so he did that for several people. So he he was more than just Variety magazine. In terms of the hoax, and I'm gonna I'm gonna have Scott elaborate that, but I want to say something. The hoax, unfortunately, is just like if you walk you watched a movie and you missed the last half of the movie. You you watched the beginning, but you missed the last half of the movie. That's what the hoax information is based on. If you haven't followed through all of the research completely, then then you don't realize. I'm so sorry. We've got a pup here. Um, if you don't tell. realize um, just what exactly is going on and and how far this was taken out of context, and and um, just got somebody pulling up. Um, so it's it's. It's so much more than that. But if you look on the Internet, you're going to see 50% of the time it talks about how this is a hoax. So what you're uh, saying, if I may, if I can distill this, what you're saying is Newton and Gebauer uh, didn't really hoax Frank Scully, but these two characters, they weren't exactly honest? Well, no, and I'm going to have Scott go into details about that, but I just want to say Really, there is another person that enters in, and it's J.P. Kahn, um, and Scott can cover that, right. too. So we'll start out with, with, first of all, I'm going to pass it to Scott, and he is going to describe to you that um, that Scully was not hoaxed and that they were not uh, found guilty of fraud. Okay, so but I'm, now, since you introduced it, before you turn it off, sure. J.P. Kahn stated that uh, he offered Mr. Scully $25,000 for proof of his story, and then he never heard from him again. That's not true. What what happened was J.P. Kahn got wind of the story because Scully had written some little sniblets in preparation as he was writing the book about it. Uh-huh. And J.P. contacted him. Actually, he worked for the San Francisco Chronicle. And J.P. said to the uh, staff and the higher-up, 
about this story. This is the story of the century. So he felt very comfortable he was going to get the story. When he approached Frank, Frank said, I don't need to give it to you. I've, I can perfectly capable of writing the story. Scully, okay. and, and, and then J.P., who was a man of means and, and um, never had to work a day in his life. He was wealthy. He had inherited a great deal of money. And so he had nothing to do. He was a very good writer, by the way. But he had nothing to do all day but play around, really. I mean, he didn't have to, to work. And when he, his ego was so bruised that he took a vendetta on Scully, he took a vendetta on Gabauer, he took a vendetta on, on Silas Newton, and then he wanted to find out who the sci- scientists were. We actually have documentation of, of how he went about doing that. You know, so often you hear that term, conspiracy or cover-up, and it's nauseum that it's, it actually becomes a diluted, you know, term. Um, it's, it's, it's great to get this information out front, right, right in the beginning, because, again, you know, this is this is an incident that has been well reported in many circles. There've been more than one book written on it, and uh, and largely it's been discredited by way of how the the mass would see this. Uh, I mean, even with Scully, when you when you talk about him as as the author of biographies, he didn't do himself any favors when he claimed to be the author of Frank Harris's biography of Bernard Shaw, which he did do some writing on, but he certainly was not the author of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're aware of all this. I, hun, okay. we've we've spent thirty years tracking this down, and you can put okay. you know there's a slant for everything. However. There are things that I think have been said and put on the Internet that are by proclamation, truth by proclamation, as opposed to having the, the documentation to prove it. Well, I have, the, I have the documents, just so we're clear here. I have the documents in front of me from the Federal Bureau of Investigation on okay. Silas Newton. So Right, right, uh, but it's only part of it. I'm going to let you talk okay. to Scott. He's got the FBI on Silas Newton right in front of him. That's good. Hello. Hi, Scott. So you, I, I hope you heard what we were talking about. What I, I'm trying I, to do I is apologize. move. I didn't. We were trying to calm the dogs down. I apologize to you and your listeners for that. Not a problem. Uh, well, actually, it would be better if they weren't there, but we'll forget that for the moment. What I'm trying to do is move us past um, all of the information that, you know, that our listeners will have encountered uh, that essentially debunk this UFO uh, incident is a hoax, et cetera, and so forth. And the characters that are involved, that's where I started, because these characters are typically the ones that gain the attention and is on the basis of some of their dishonesty uh, and convictions uh, that, you know, people just dismiss this whole thing. And so I, I wanted to make sure we got around that. Now, Suzanne was explaining, you know, you've done the documentation uh, let's pick it up from there. Tell us about um, these characters and, and and how Newton and Gebauer and Scully were related and what you did to demonstrate or to prove that, um, you know, what Scully had said was genuine and these other characters, they were artifacts of the story that we shouldn't be focused on. Well, very good. Uh, yeah, I was probably the only one that's ever... Uh, fought with the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act and got most, probably 80% of all the uh, files and records on the, from the FBI. Uh, another researcher had already done that years before on Leo Gabauer. Uh, when you go through the FBI files and the court case itself, you find a completely different story than one you would find, one, that one would find on the Internet. Uh, for example, it took four judges California, Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico to deny the original charges to be brought against Silas Newton and Leo Gabauer, which, in case your audience doesn't know, is over a investment in a doodlebug machine that would allegedly find oil and water and anything else you wanted it to find. And okay. I'm going to ask the, you to hold that because we've got a hard break coming up, but the, we've also got some communication 
uh, differences between what Suzanne and I were talking about. So when we come back, I'll bring you back around to the conviction on these two men and the fine that they paid, and, and we'll pick it up from there. All right? Very good. We're speaking with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey about the Aztec incident. To learn more about our guests and their work, visit their website at theaztecincident.com. Okay, we have a video for you today, if you're in the chat room, of a short slide showing the Aztec ruins near Four Corners and the Roswell UFO crash site. So remember to join Ravinder in the chat room. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out later. Don't try and do it now by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey about the Aztec incident. Again, to learn more about our guests and their work, visit their website at theaztecincident.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Indeed, just recently, music was shown to change the way you think. All right, we just played some of For Crying Out Loud by Meatloaf. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, Scott and Suzanne, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Oh, that's her favorite, one of her favorite groups, so that that was her pick. That was her pick. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, I'm going to give her a skate on that one because we don't. I want to get into the meat of your research, and um, you know, I want to wrap up this if we can very quickly. This stuff with J.P. Kahn and and Newton and Gabauer. Um, what I had suggested, or what I would covered with your wife, was the fact that Kahn claims that he's tested alien metal. And it turned out to be aluminum. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, Herman Glader, a millionaire from Denver, pressed charges against uh, Gebauer and, and Newton. And they were convicted of fraud and related charges in 1953. Okay. For selling a 18,000. Go ahead. 
You're 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 pulling that off the internet. They were convicted. I have to have the whole stack of everything that legally went on in the courtroom. They were never convicted. They they were found in civil court. They the fine was dropped. No money was paid. It was a civil case, not a criminal case. So you can't be found guilty in a civil case. Well, that's true. I'm pulling this from the Skeptics Dictionary. So you're telling oh, me they're God. incorrect. Oh, just throw that away. I w- I'll be more than happy to make copies and send you the, the the real files, not the debunker files. All right. Well, that's good. So I'd love to see the files because I know how this misinformation gets out there. Yep. I also know how one of the great distractors, the way to discredit anything, is to seed stories that are either hyperbole or they're just completely false, and that thereby, you know, disconnects us from credibility, and we go on and ignore the truth. Yep, exactly. That's exactly what I, I stumbled on that, not not at the early stages of the research, and and when I did that, you know, obviously that, that kind of threw a wrench in their works, and you went, whoa, 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 what are we what are we chasing here? The other thing I did not know until recently was Scully and Newton then filed a civil suit against Keating and Slater, and it's kind of hard to have one against Keating. He was the prosecutor, uh, and uh, J.P. Kahn uh, for $25 million, and they settled out of court. And, of course, the case is sealed. Uh, Frank Thayer and I tried to get copies of the case. It's sealed, but obviously they, they were happy with their settlement. Okay, so what we're talking about is a deliberate disinformation effort carried out by somebody to discredit this. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that gives rise to the next question. Um, if this really happened, what who has an interest in hiding it and why? Well, everybody, I would think, in the government and the military would have a great interest in hiding it. And as we went through the, the research over the years, it really, the big question from the Air Force, the CIA, the FBI, wasn't, wasn't the case itself, but who leaked the information to Frank Scully? Uh, did you read the, the chapter in the book, George Kohler and the Air Force Boys? I did. So I'm gonna, yeah. that's my next question. I was yeah. just going to ask you that, to flesh that, was, that out for us, please. Yeah, they, that was... You know, the the interrogation of George Kohler was after the after the uh, University of Denver speech, where one of the scientists backed out, and uh, so Silas Newton took the the lead and jumped in at the last minute, and gave the speech to the, to the jam packed uh, auditorium of uh, Francis Broman's uh, physics and science class, and afterwards. Uh, George Kohler, who was there recording it for the local radio station, was interrogated by uh, office, Special Officer Hansen and Unger with the Air Force OSI. Right. And as you read in the interrogation, and that's that's a very famous uh, deal with uh, Scully, where he put in his book, they recorded it, and then Kohler erased it and gave the agents from the Air Force a blank check or blank tape, or actually it was a wire back then. And uh, when we were doing research, we actually found the original wire and had it converted. And that's where we get that. We have that the whole conversation with the three of them on uh, CD. Tell us about the conversation. Tell, well, they're, tell us. they're more interested in not so much who is the character on the stage giving the lecture about this recovered flying saucer, but including, of course, the drive mechanism, the magnetic drive mechanism, the magnetic drive mechanism and, and other right. incidentals about it. But more or less, who is giving Scully this information? And uh, they came from Lackland Air Force Base in Colorado up there, to, uh, which isn't that far. I mean, they had a short trip. But throughout the whole research, it's always who, including in Scully's book, you know, he talks about the the group of scientists that he pulls together and under one umbrella calls them all Dr. G. And uh, that is what, you know, when Frank Scully, when he died in the 60s, he never divulged even to his family who those scientists were. So that was very important to him to keep that uh, keep that a secret. 
But now you did your own work and you found some scientists that you were able to talk to. Isn't that right? None that we were able to talk to. All those folks were unfortunately dead by the time that chapter came together. Okay, I said that wrong, but you did get information from these scientists. Yes. Share that with us. What did you learn? Well, what we did, um, we took the descriptions in Frank Scully's original 1950 book, Behind the Flying Saucer. Mm-hmm. And he is really, you know, keep in mind when that book came out in, in uh, September of 1950, we don't have the, the access to the knowledge we do today. And he was talking about specific scientists that worked on specific projects during World War II, which under an umbrella would be the Manhattan Project. Right. And in each description of each scientist and what they did, that chapter, by the way, took two and a half years to research. Suzanne and I went through the old OSRD divisions of the Manhattan Project to look to see who was working on those particular projects. And that's where we identify each scientist. And Scully also was kind enough, in in a few cases, to give us their college information, where they went to school, University of Berlin, University of Nebraska, or Crete University. And uh, that's painstaking research. And in some cases, we had to go to, for example, the University of Minnesota and pull up all the records on Dr. Jonathan Torrance Tate who in our first book I really thought was the main Dr. G. In the second book, I tie him with Highland, Carl Highland, who they basically had the same jobs during OSRD and had almost identical uh, college uh, uh, histories as far as where they went to college. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing, uh, these were the men of who, the men of science, Actually, both Tate and uh, Highland were men of science, which Scully mentions that in his book. And we looked at the projects they worked on during the war. We looked at projects they worked on post-war and what they did post-war up until their death. And in one Chicago interview, which we have, they asked Scully back in 51, "We'd we'd like to eventually talk to or meet Dr. G., and Scully answers, he's not available anymore, which is ironic because Dr. Tate died just about the same time the book came out, wow. Frank Scully's book. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't available to talk to anymore. Some of the founding fathers of what we know now today as Texas Instrument worked on that original group. So if you take, you know, in, in 1950, Frank Scully's book was obviously a very good seller. It sold 64,000 copies right out of the chute. When people would poo-poo the book, they would kind of poo-poo the scientist thing and say, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're talking about scientists that were, had the capability of taking submarines out and in some cases did seven in one day? That's fantastic. Well, if you go and look at the OSRD records, that in fact did happen. So Scully wasn't really telling a tall tale when that, in, in, the, in, in his book, uh, Behind the Flying Saucers. Were you able to place any of these scientists actually at the scene of the crash during uh, a relevant time period? We can place Dr. Torrance Tate in the southwest in March of 1948. Uh, his travel records at the university just list that he was in the southwest. It also lists that he elected to drive because he hated flying. And he drove an unair-conditioned woody uh, station wagon uh, from Minnesota out to the southwest. It's not very specific. When Suzanne and I were up there for a number of days, there were boxes that were literally sealed in 1950 that had never been opened and viewed by the public. We would probably really need another week or, or more back at the university to just go through all his records. They're fascinating. Some of the work he did is just unbelievable. Okay, so let's let's back up then to the crash. Um, there's an argument. I mean, first of all, is this UFO 99.99 feet or is it 100 feet in size? <laughs> God only knows. It, pardon? I said God only knows. I am... Um, 
the, 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 the people I interviewed, they were oil field workers. They were basically 19, 20, 22 years of age. Nobody ever measured it. You know, we're going on the dimensions from what is basically stated in uh, Frank Scully's original book. They so some, was very large craft. Some of this nonsense about the magic of 999, that's just nonsense. I don't know if I'm smart enough to answer that. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you look at the metric system, it's all divisible by 25.46. So is it outrageous to say everything's and another measurement is divisible by nine? I don't know the answer to that. All right. Okay. So let's leave that. Now, the crash occurs, mm-hmm. and there are two dead bodies. Now, my understanding is there was a later craft that was attempted to be shot down. Apparently, they weren't successful. It actually landed. Is that correct? Don't know anything about that. I've only concentrated on the the one out in Hart Canyon. There were two bodies on the upper deck, and anywhere from 14 to 16 total count of bodies uh, by the time the the bodies were extracted out of the craft. And they were basically humanoid, dressed in 1890s kind of wardrobe, and... Three feet tall? Three and a half to four feet tall in blue jumpsuit-type uh, outfits. They were in blue jumpsuit outfits. So the, this information said they were in, like, 1890 wardrobe. That's that's also incorrect. Well, I don't know. See, some of that is directly out of Frank Scully's book, and if you know, which is a great reference point. But when we have the luxury of interviewing people in their senior years that were at the site, on March 25th, I, I, I take their flight suits or jumpsuits a little more than I do somebody describing it as a 1800s jumpsuit or whatever, however Scully described it. Right, okay. So, I, I mean, that's, I suppose, just irrelevant. I'm trying to, to separate some of this fact out and, and well, separate it out and determine what really is fact based on, you know, all of the research that you've done. Okay, tell us about the P-80 incident and your conclusions regarding this crash. Well, the P-80 was uh, based on what we now call Highway 380 that goes from uh, San Antonio or uh, basically Interstate 25, today it was Highway 1, over Mm -hmm. to the town of Carrizozo. And that P-80 was stationed there with uh, Lieutenant Sol was the, 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 uh, the pilot, he was based at uh, March Air Force Base in California, and uh, he was sent down there with power cart and a full crew, and his job was to go up and, with his onboard cameras, photograph the flying saucers that had been going over the 509th at Roswell Army Airfield. And on uh, the, the final day of his flight, uh, the aircraft took off, came down. It was going from west to east. Gained some altitude and apparently got ahead of the, the speed and air curve on the on the P-80 and belly flopped it over into a gas station where he was killed and a couple of people on the ground were killed. Right. But that entire well, it's kind of funny when it's sad, but funny in, a, in the sense that when you pull the crash report from the Air Force, there's two completely conflicting reports. There's one they released to the press back then, and then there's the internal investigation from the Air Force. They have the release to the press that he was coming in almost on a dead stick landing because he ran low on fuel vectoring a storm. The actual one uh, from the Air Force that we got was talking about the fact he was based there to give added protection to the 509th at Roswell Army Airfield. So which one is it? Are you up there taking pictures of flying saucers, or are you dead sticking it in uh, because you ran out of fuel? Right. And and if I infer correctly from reading your book, you would tend to say that uh, they were taking photographs. I think he was up there to add some extra support on the western side of the mountain range uh, for what was going on at the, the 509. They had no jet fighters at the time. I think they had P-51s. The P-80 was relatively brand new. It became the F-80 and then progressed from there. Right. Um, it was a little sluggish, but a little bit quicker than a P-51. Sluggish at low altitude, very thirsty for fuel. 
But if you needed something that could uh, be a little bit faster than a Rockwell P-51, that was your plane. Okay. One of the criticisms that you run into, Scott, all the time on the story is, you know, how how do, how would you move a 100-foot craft off the mesa in the desert in a hurry? <laughs> well, it was a two-week process, but I guess in the overall scheme of things, that was a hurry. Uh, that one that one we had to do right before the first book came out. I said to Suzanne, you know, there's some really legitimate criticism uh, against Aztec, and one is how do you get a 100-foot disc off of a rocky mount, a rocky plateau and then get it out on some roads that sometimes you've got all the room in the world and on other times you have very little room. Yeah, they're not 100 foot wide. No, and so we went back to Scully's book, only reference that we have that talks about how a craft that was disassembled. And it's the only mention, you know, because this book is written, you know, almost live uh, from when this is all happening, you know, two years later. And Scully talks about uh, that through a series of pins, kind of like what we have, like pin pins on aircraft today, the craft was held together. And once they figured out how to take out the center section, that was one piece. And then three pie-shaped pieces of the lenticular disc itself. Uh, Once we had that uh, information, we went and hired Bill Metzger, who was retired, but a renowned expert in moving large objects kind of brought Bill and Pam out of retirement for just over a week. We all met out in Aztec, and we reenacted moving a craft that was broken down into those pieces. And, uh, of course, we did this in August because that's the hottest time of the year to be out in the middle of the desert. But we we did it from the crash site down to Lybrook, and then we reenacted it from Lybrook back to the crash site just to make sure landing site just to make sure going both directions we uh, we covered everything. And we had large poles to uh, demonstrate what the size would be of the craft and how to get it down through the canyons. And, uh, we did encounter one bridge that uh, drew pause because it was an old narrow uh, railroad bridge that's now for equipment to go across. But we found out that wasn't installed until 1963. So, you know, we were okay with that. But it, you know, it was a very costly process. But we spent a lot of money researching this book, so that that had to be done. It's a great book, by the way, and it, it well, reads like a true adventure story. I think everybody should read this one. Um, let me. Is there any physical evidence uh, remaining uh, from this crash site? I guess that would be subject to interpretation. The the one physical piece that I've I and other people find uh, amazing is back in late 99, 2000, I interviewed a gentleman from the Air Force that was involved in the recovery. However, he was never at the crash site. He was at Walker Air Force Base, which is Roswell, after 1947, 1948, the Roswell Army Airfield became Walker Air Force Base. Uh, He worked, and he's the one that told us the recovery was about two weeks. He said, if you think you're at the right spot, look to where we had to cut a road in to get to the top of the mesa. Also, mm-hmm. as you're poking around, look for some concrete footers, because as we cut the road, the road, the, the ground was very silty. And as we were bringing in the equipment to move the craft out, we couldn't get a good uh, pad down for the crane. And he said, we had the four concrete footers, which delayed everything a few days. So Randy Barnes, a good friend of mine that uh, at the time lived in Farmington, he went out and poked around the silt with a piece of rebar and called me that night excited. And Bill Steinman talked about it in his book, too. But over the years, it's kind of a wash basin coming down that mesa. And over the right. years, the, the pad had been covered with silt. So, yes, in fact, we did find it. That's it, it, again. It's an intriguing, incredible story, and I could I could talk to you for another hour on this. One quick question: Sure, did you ever fear for your own safety as you were doing this research? No, uh, we get asked that a lot. Uh, I, I think the case is so old; it's, it's kind of like Stanton Friedman with Roswell. I, you know, for many many years, I drove uh, from Albuquerque by myself up a two lane road when it was Highway Forty Four. Uh, two and a half, three hours late at night and doing the reverse coming back to get my flight back to North Carolina. I think if anybody wanted to 
give me a hard time. They had plenty of time to do it. Uh, never had a problem. Now I think the case is so old that nobody really cares. All right. Well, the book, again, The Aztec UFO Incident, and the website is theaztecincident.com. What is that the best place to reach you, Scott, you and Suzanne? If you want a signed copy of the book, then buy it from our website. And I'm going to throw a quick caveat in right now. The first person that buys a book from the website, we will throw in a $24.95 value, a free DVD. It's an hour-long documentary on the research. If you don't care about having a signed copy, you can get it through Amazon.com or any Barnes & Noble. It's a great read. Somebody out there is going to take you up on that $24 uh, freebie. <laughs> I really appreciate the two of you coming on, taking your time, and sharing you know, so willingly with us. And uh, I didn't mean to disparage in any sense of the word your work uh, or your devotion to bringing a credible story, but I did want to dismiss some of the nonsense that's out there by way of disinformation right in the beginning, so I also appreciate your willingness sure. to do that. Sure. No, that's fine, Eldon. We, and we appreciate being on your show. We really do. Yeah. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.